Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Signum Thesis Theatre. And I'm delighted that you've been able to join us this evening for what promises to be, as usual, a really interesting session, listening to a student tell us all about the work that they have been doing on their master's thesis. So um, today we're going to be listening to my student, Eugene Sullivan, Jean, uh, who has been working with me uh, for the last few semesters now, uh, putting together a really interesting thesis uh, in which he's exploring um, a certain set of characters of the Lord of the Rings, I think I can safely say are very rarely discussed in scholarly works, and that is the roses. Uh, so I'm going to hand this over straight away now to Jean. And Jean, first of all, welcome to the Thesis Theatre and Thank congratulations you. on completing your thesis. Delighted Thank for you. And I'm going to ask you, first of all, the usual starting question. Can you tell <laughs> everybody a little bit, first of all, about what your thesis is actually about and then tell us why it is you chose that topic? Um. Yes. So, as you said, uh, I'm, I'm focusing on the Wozes or the, the Druidine or the Wild Men. They have a number of different names. Um, they, uh, they show up in uh, somewhat unexpectedly in the Return of the King to help uh, the Rohirrim uh, avoid the, the waiting army to get to Gondor. Um, and I'm going to back up and start over. Off to a good start. All right. Um, so the, in, in, in writing Lord of the Rings, um, there, was, there was a shift in focus uh, from the earlier works that we have, the Book of Lost Tales and the, the attempts at working out Silmarillion, where the focus of his, uh, the focus of his writing shifted to men more than elves and, and became much closer to the day-to-day the -day world that people were living in move from a, a mythological mode into more of a novelistic mode. And uh, in doing so, um, you know, he, he, he had to fill out the world of men. Uh, and there was a lot of cultures that he created in order to populate this world now. Uh, the Rohirrim, Gondor, uh, the Lossoth up north that we don't really see, but we hear about uh, uh, the Haradrim that we see coming up from the south. There's a lot of different cultures that were created there. Um, and in in creating these cultures, he uh, Tolkien drew, you know, to greater or lesser degrees for some of them on uh, real world cultures for inspiration. Um, you know, the, the Rohirrim have been written about a lot as uh, Anglo-Saxons on horseback was the title of one paper I wrote with question mark because they are and they aren't. Uh, you know, there's there's Byzantine influence in Gondor, there's uh, uh, Ethiopian influence, potentially the Sigilwara land essay that he wrote for the Haradrim. So for the Wozes, um, what I argue, and I think I, I show pretty effectively, is that what he's, the, the inspiration for them that he's using is, is a, a particular stereotypical representation of sort of collectively Native Americans. And it's a, it's a representation that came to him, I think, most directly from the really unfortunately named Piccaninny tribe of Peter Pan. Um, but that, you know, it's, it's, it's the result of a long history, a long chain of different representations by European 
uh, explorers or tourists or fiction authors of, you know, a, taking a, a, an image of what they think might be happening in North America and, and sort of crafting a, a very, um, very versatile stereotype. Um, and the, the thing about this, this Red Indian story, that's how Tolkien refers to them in uh, On Fairy Stories. He loves stories about Red Indians. It's, a, it's, a, it's very versatile. It's very flexible. They can be whatever the narrative that they're inserted in really needs them to be. They can be noble. They can be savage. They can be a little bit of both. Uh, you know, there's, there's the, the pigeon language, you know, the pigeon common that the, the Woeses use is very common in Peter Pan, in Fenimore Cooper's uh, leather stocking tales, in the Winnetou books. You know, that could either be taciturn because they don't speak their childlike or they're simply very noble and they speak like it's, it's whatever it needs to be. So, so he, he drew on this, this Red Indian stereotype, this, this view of Native Americans and put them in the middle of Gondor. Now they, you know, they serve a particular purpose in the narrative, which is he needed native guides. And that's a very common trope. You know, they know the land very well. They're very close to the land, so we need guides. Um, and, uh, but but to, to use that stereotype, it, it doesn't come without some accompanying, um, or baggage might be the wrong word, but it brings things with it. You can't just take a group of people and make them native guides and drop them into this land without dealing with the fact that they have to interact with the cultures around them. So in using the, the Red Indian trope, it's not just that we get these people here and they can guide them and then we're done with them. This, their presence has an impact on the people around them. It changes what Gondor is. It changes what Rohan is. Um, it changes what Numenor was um, because, you know, Gondor is sort of a successor culture to Numenor. Well, the Wozes remember, they have a long oral tradition apparently because they remember when the men came up out of the water and started carving up the stone and, and building the roads. So was that their land first? You know, it, it recasts Gondor and Numenor as, as very strongly colonial cultures in the vein of the cultures that came to North America and took over the whole continent. Um, but by the same token, Rohan, you know, the, the deal that Han Barakhan makes with Theoden is we will show you the way so you can go help them. Our only, the only thing we ask is please just stop killing us. Which, you know, why are they hunting and killing them? They don't even mm -hmm. live in Rohan, you know, it, 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 it takes both of these, these cultures, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxons on horseback, right? Well, they're not just that. They're an invasive culture that has come into what was apparently not actually uninhabited land. There's even um, Dunharrow, which is a religious site of some sort, clearly built by the Woses because there's statues of them there. And now they've taken that and make it, made it their, you know, their hold in the mountains. So, um, so that's, that's the first part of it. He took them, he put them in here and in doing so, he really changed the, the nature of the cultures that they interact with because that's how that stereotype works. It doesn't stand mm -hmm. alone. It, it's very dependent on how it interacts with the cultures around it. Um, now having inserted them into the Lord of the Rings after that was published, a lot of the other writings that we see in Unfinished Tales or in People's Middle Earth is 
is uh, Tolkien attempting to take what he's now created and published and find a way to bring it into alignment with the earlier, uh, his earlier stories, the stories of the first age and the second age. Well, now we have a third age of men. How do we get from the first age and the awakening of men and the awakening of the children and, and get to the third age? And the, the problem that I believe he ran into is in, in bringing these into alignment is that the first age as originally conceived had a very strong hierarchy of peoples. And whether it's a racial hierarchy or another word that might work with it, he used a lot of different words. It is the hierarchy and there are the, the light and there's the twilight and there's the dark. There's the elves who saw the trees and the elves who didn't. Uh, there's uh, when the three kindreds of men are first introduced, we have another threefold hierarchy of the, the you know, the Faramir outlines later, the men of the West and the men of twilight and the men of darkness. And what we have with the Wozes is wild men, they call them, but they're definitely not men of darkness. They don't fit in any solid way into the hierarchy you'd created. And in attempting sort of shoehorn them back into the first age, there were a couple different attempts that are a little contradictory. They were sort of a client culture. They lived with the folk of Hollis. Um, they were, but then, you know, how did they become sort of an indigenous people along the West Coast of Middle Earth? It's not really clear. And he's, he softened it by saying, well, they're the ancestors of them anyway. They're related in some way. I don't know how it's not. And then in the stories of the second age, we have Numenor, you know, stealing the wood of, of the West Coast of Middle Earth in order to build their ships. It's a very common thing that happened in North America too. Um, and and whether these people were Wozes, whether they were this, whether they were that, is not clear. There's contradictory notes. He couldn't make it work. And, and I think the problem he ran into was, well, he had created this culture. He had to sort of engage with what it means to have them there. And he never really found a good way to fit that into the hierarchy he had originally envisioned for the first and second age. And there's no solid, um, you know, he never published the Silmarillion. He never, he never reconciled all these things. So we have a lot of different notes in different works that see him attempting to deal with the fact that they're not just a stereotype, they're people, they're humans. What do I do with them? And never really coming to a solid uh, conclusion. So, I mean, having said all of this, there must have been something that drew you to this topic in the first place. What, uh, what inspired you to actually do this particular study? Um, I knew that I wanted to, I mean, I knew that I wanted to engage, you know, there's a lot of options in, in Signum's program. And I knew I wanted to focus specifically on Tolkien, not on you know, one of the other authors. And I, I was looking for something that hadn't really been um, explored to any great degree. And what I found, it was actually, my wife was reading The Lord of the Rings, which she finally did. Um, and, and watching her read it and watching her discover things that weren't in the film, so she was therefore not familiar with. Um, so when she hit The Return of the King and she read the chapter with Rohan going through the forest, she was like, who are these guys? Mm -hmm. Like, well, that's a really good question, sweetheart. So, um, so she sort of drew my attention to them as something, well, yeah, like they haven't really been explored that much. And, and in rereading uh, you know, book five of, uh, of Lord of the Rings, I, I thought about, you know, who are they? What, what do they do? And I, I read um, 
Berlin Flieger has a paper, the Tolkien's Wild Men, Medieval and Modern. Um, and she said, you know, their Hanbury Khan is a stereotypically medieval wild man. Tolkien even calls him a wild man. And I thought, Tolkien doesn't call him a wild man. Elfhelm calls him a wild man. And the, and the, the sort of the, the, the difference, potential difference between the authorial voice and the narrative voice was like, well, you know, what are they? That's, that's, that's how that happens. I wanted to explore, well, what are they really? Not just what does Rohan see them as or what does Gondor see them as, but, but you know, let's look at them within this world that he's created and see, well, well who are they? Mm -hmm. so, mm. And they're, you know, they're an indigenous people that are living in the forest and they're wholly enclosed by, a, a, you know, a, a much more militaristic culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that, you know, and looking at their characteristics and the way they dressed and the way they speak and everything, it's like, well, these are, he's doing something involving a, a Native American look. And then, you know, I watched Peter Pan because I have kids or something it's like, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So for the people who are watching, you've now had a little bit of an overview of Eugene's work. Uh, and uh, he's also explained some of the reasons why he was drawn to this topic. So now that you've got a little bit more of an understanding of what he's actually talking about, feel free to pop any questions at any time into the question box. Uh, and if you see me looking from side to side, by the way, I've got a number of screens, so that's why I'm I'm not turning away from Jean. It's not like that. So I've got the question box right here, and I will be keeping my eye on it. So if you've got questions for Jean, please feel free to pop them into the question box at any point, okay? Um, and oh, Sparrow says good evening, Eugene. <laughs> Hello, Sparrow. Good morning from the West Coast. Okay, so. Um, the next thing I wanted to ask you, you just were talking about um, how your wife noticed these characters and they stood out to her because they're obviously excised from the movies. Um, and she asked you who they are and you said, that's a good question. And then looked into it and realized that there wasn't a lot out there about it. And you wanted to choose something that hadn't really been done in Signum before. So did you come across any scholarship that was actually focused on the Woses? Uh, there was some. Um, and, well, focused solely on them, no. Um, mm. They show up in work. There was Verlin Flieger's uh, paper that I mentioned earlier. Um, there's a, a, an anthropologist named Virginia Luling that wrote a paper that deals with them and um, one of the other cultures, it's the, the, the Hardrim and the Sodron. Okay. Um, but she, she, she takes sort of an anthropological point of view um, and she discusses them at some length. And they, uh, Dimitri Femi's uh, Race and Cultural History book, which is fantastic, does also point out, you know, there's, there's a couple pages where they show up where she's discussing that racial hierarchy and how they don't really fit into the uh, the kind of the the threefold division of men and elves. So there is some. They're not they're not completely ignored. Um, they do show up, but there's there's not much that focuses sort of solely on them. And I'm you know one of the reasons is that there's not a a whole lot to go on, it, just in the text itself. There's not a lot mm. of time on the page. Um, they they they're there for the brief bit of of chapter five of book five, and they come back again at the end as Aragorn sort of very um, 
hopefully gives them back the land that they've been living on for millennia already. Um, uh, you know, but there's, yeah, so anyway, there, there is some, um, and, uh, and I've read, I think everything, I mean, everything I could find where they were brought up. So mm -hmm. yeah, they're, they're not completely ignored, but they're not really deeply explored and, and people tend to focus on them. You know, they, they is one of the things that, that caught my eye was, well, they're, they're, they call them wild men. So let's look at them in the context of medieval wild men. And it's a very, uh, it's, it's a fruitful way to look, you know, there's, that's definitely a, a, a good context in which to look at them, but it's not the only one. Um, it's, that's looking at them from Rohan's point of view, mm -hmm. which is valid, but there's, you know, there's other ways to look at them. Okay. Well, questions are starting to come in about the Woeses in particular. So, um, in fact, the, the, there's two questions here and they've kind of got a similar track on uh, what they're asking. So Sparrow says, I have not read Tolkien's words about the Woeses. Does he particularly say they are modelled on the Red Indians and not um, lingering Neanderthals? And Joe Hoffman asks, okay, I believe the Woeses are, oops, that's just disappeared off my screen. I believe the Woeses are a colonized race. What makes them Native Americans in particular? So I think both of them kind of asking there, um, what makes you identify them as Red Indians, according to the terminology that Tolkien uses, which is of course incredibly outdated, but Native Americans, um, why would you uh, label them as that? So his words about them, there, there's, there's, he doesn't address them very directly in very many places. Um, there is a note in that's published in Peoples of Middle Earth where he does discuss them as, uh, and I, I could look it up, but sort of informally as well, they're a, you know, a remnant of another people, of, of a primitive people that, you know, are in this land that they've moved into, which, you know, would sort of speak to them as, yes, they're maybe like that in, in European terms, they're a remnant of Neanderthal people, there's, you know, a wild men living in the woods. And that's, that is a suggestion that he makes. But um, if you, if you look at, what I look at in this is, is not just um, their placement in relation to the people around them, but the the attributes that they have, the way they dress, uh, the way they speak, um, the, and the, the role that they serve in the text, which is that of pathfinders in the woods. Mm -hmm. um, and none of these are on, on their own or, are like, um, you know, nothing is a surefire like, look, this is the smoking gun that says, you know, none of these on their own are that thing, but they, the description that he gives of them as being nearly naked and wearing the grass skirt uh, resonates very strongly with not specifically Native American, but with a lot of the there's 19th century primitive man stereotype that you see in mm -hmm. uh, the H. Ryder Haggard books or, uh, you know, the, the other circle of South Sea Adventure books. Author, I can't remember the name of. There's a strong sort of general savage native vibe with the grass skirt and the the being naked um they're nearly naked the the scanty hair pushes you a little more towards that that's, that's a, a common thing that's referenced with not just um 
Sid Fenimore Cooper or, or Winnetou or any of the sort of the travelogues that people talk about Native Americans, they're, they're often people make a point of the hairlessness. Um, so their, their physical attributes, you know, could be interpreted as generally savage native types, um, but also, uh, you know, they, they do resonate strongly with Native American things. But if you look at the role they play in the text specifically, uh, that, that sort of wayfinder in the woods with old paths is something that, that occurs a lot you know, when it's needed by a text where there are Native Americans in an area and an army uh, needs a guide in the woods. That's that's something that um, Chingachgook and Uncas play that role a number of times in Last of the Mohicans. Like the, if you read um, in Last of the Mohicans, there's where they're guiding uh, the major and Cora and them around the French army to get where they need to go. It's it's very, very similar to the Rohirrim being guided around the waiting uh, orcs to get to, to Minas Tirith. So it's not just about how they look, it's about what they do, that role that they play. Mm -hmm. um, and then so there's the- there's a difference, isn't there, between identifying them as Native American and identifying them as the stereotype Red Indian that was created uh, in white literature uh, in this time. Th those are two different things, aren't they? You're not saying the Woses they, are Native American. You're saying that they're no. actually fulfilling this stereotype of red, of red Indian. Yeah, they're they're fulfilling the red Indian role, that that stereotypical role, and that that representation, that that stereotype, uh, you know, has a, a point I make in here. It doesn't have any particular reference to any actually existing Native American culture. It, it picks little bits and pieces from, you know, whoever the, the writer in question happens to be familiar with and sort of mm. composites them all into an Indian type that they can use for whatever the narrative needs them to do. Um, you know, and the, the, the fictional representations that we see um, in the 19th and 20th centuries, early 20th centuries, are, you know, you, you I, I trace some of the, the way that they pick and choose from the, you know, theoretically non-fictional narratives of the 18th and 17th centuries, you know, but if you look at those, they were written by people who may or may not actually have encountered much in the way of Native Americans in America, and then they were re-edited in Europe for publication to sort of punch them up a little bit and make them sell well. So the, you know, there's there's very little reference to any actual tribes that are recognizable. You know, even even in Fenimore Cooper's case where he names tribes, they're still not actually particularly accurate representations of the actual tribes that he names. Mm -hmm. um, so what, you know, they're not, they're not Native American. They're the Woses and they're in Middle Earth, but they are constructed of, uh, elements that are really, really common in the, the Red Indian stereotype and the, the role that they fulfill in the text fits very well um, in line with that. Mm -hmm. you know, and then their relationship to the people around them, you know, that, which, is, which is a consequence of the role that they need to fulfill. They need to be there and they need to have that knowledge to guide them around that. So they must have been there before. So they know these old roles, like they, they're fulfilling this, the stereotypical role very effectively, mm -hmm. but they're not. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a very important distinct distinction to make, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's uh, it's a very important question to be asking. You know, what is Tolkien doing with this particular people? Um, and I think that these are questions that are increasingly being asked, actually, about Tolkien's work in the last, really only the last few years, shamefully enough, but the last few years, uh, we have seen an increase in a scholarly discussion around race in Tolkien. Um, and the idea of race, representation, diversity, etc., cetera, uh, has come much more strongly into focus uh, recently. So, um, you know, where do you see your work kind of fitting into the discussion that's going on right now about Tolkien and race and representation? I think one of the, an, an aspect that really needs to be taken into account when you, when you talk about not just Tolkien, but I think any author uh, is is engaging with with race and how race is constructed is is it's not just about are they are they using stereotypes are they invoking stereotypes but are they are they interacting with them in any way are we uncritically just dropping a stereotypical image on the page and moving on or you know is there engagement with it is is he looking at the stereotype and trying to you know interrogate it make sure that you know, there's like, are, are we looking at the people behind the stereotype? Or are we just using it and moving on? Um, because that sort of, you know, that informs how you how you interpret everything, you know, and, and whether you can, um, you know, how he treats one group can help us understand how he treats other groups. And I think in this case, he's, if you look at the way they're in the, the earlier drafts of Return of the King, and you see how they were originally just sort of wild men that fight and run away and then they're wild men that fight and then fight the and then run away like I think he started by saying I need this group in this text and then he as as the writing went on he looked at at how he was using them and the role they were fulfilling and I think there was engagement with it and I think that helps to inform you know if you want to infer sort of how he felt about different race how he felt about representation you know you, you look at his engagement with it and and see how that works so hopefully you know in this sort of small instance of this one group you know if uh we can look at how he engages with the stereotypes he's using and and if if he changes how he's working based on the drafts which he did you know that helps us look at also how he looks at the southrons or the hardrim or the loss off which there was a paper at the tolkien society seminar a couple months ago about them you know it it, it helps us build a, a sort of a framework for looking at how he looks at all sorts of different groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, I think there's, it's safe to say there is consensus in academia, well, in certain, certain uh, section <laughs> of academia, that um, there are, there are definitely problematic areas on race in Tolkien's work. But the important thing is that readers and scholars are engaging with that uh, and discussing that as part of academic work and that's why I think what you're doing is is really interesting because you're picking out um, a particular people that haven't really been focused on and they are worthy of 
discussion. And I think, you know, as scholars, it's really important that we are engaging with how an author is being problematic about race uh, and making that part of the way in which we are um, understanding him, that you think. Yeah, and you know, the, there's the, the problematic, problematicity, if you will, because there's a, there's a spectrum of that, sure. And, and it does, you know, which, which end of it he falls on, like how problematic one is, does depend on, I think, to some degree at least, whether you're just uncritically using things or you put the stereotype there and you, you think about then what that means and, and how it works, you know, and the, the, the classic example shows up in, in almost every paper that deals with this, I think, is, is uh, Sam watching the fighting uh, of farmers, men in the Southrons and looking at the dying Southron and thinking like, why, why are you here? Who told you what that you needed to come here? Like, there's, there's very much a sense in Tolkien, you know, the, the whole book is, is sort of suffused with compassion. That's his thing is, is compassion and, and pity and mercy and love. That's, that's the crux of the whole thing. And, and Tolkien takes these stereotypes and some of them are really, really problematic, but he very often, not always, but very often makes an effort to put a human behind it, you know, mm -hmm. show you the stereotype and then, and then, and then put a person behind it. So you can't just dismiss it as savage Southrons as wild men in the woods. Like, no, there's people there, you know, it's when you run into the orcs, it gets more difficult because but even then you've got uh, uh, Snaga and, and Lugdash talking about how we should run off and do our own. Like, even with the orcs, there's a little bit of personification. But mm -hmm. you know, it yeah. softens the problematicness where it's like, no, there's people there, there's humans behind these things. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've got some more questions. Um, Richard White has a question for you. Um, he says, when you look at some of the 16th and 17th century European travelers' accounts, Europeans struggled with what the native peoples they encountered actually were. Were they human? Were they animal? These accounts would eventually be used to justify slavery in the United States. In trying to fit the Woeses into the greater history of Middle Earth and into his existing hierarchy, do you think Tolkien struggled with the same issues? Yeah, I think he did. Um, there was so in in those early travelogues and the the explorers there there was you know there's there's a wide variety of reactions there were there were people who were perfectly prepared to just do business with native americans like you have furs i want furs i have steel weapons and you can have those and there was a lot of people that were like all right your people you know uh the 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 roger williams who founded rhode island was very much one of, of dealing with native americans as humans but there were other people there was, it was one of the sort of surprising things i ran into to actually in, in studying for this was that there was a, a there were a number of people that had a hard time dealing with the idea that there were humans here because if Adam and Eve happened over here how did anybody mm -hmm. get here and it was mm -hmm. a real problem for a lot of people and and there was a there were suggestions of well maybe there was an Adam and Eve on every continent which is an inventive way of dealing with that but there was but then there were other people like, well, are they human? Maybe we came from Adam and Eve and maybe they evolved from apes. Eh. You know, there were a lot of people dealing with like, I don't know how there could be people here, you know? And um, so, but the, this question of origin and stuff is is something that Tolkien 
dealt with too, uh, particularly with relation to the orcs. That was the question of where they came from. Were they corrupted men? Were they corrupted elves? Were they created by never resolved? There's there's never been a solid answer about that because it's a really difficult question. If they're men or elves that have been corrupted, well, they're children of Iluvatar and they have souls. Do they go to Mandos when they die? Do they still get the gift of men? Is there redemption for them? He didn't know. He didn't have a solid answer for that. And, and one of the notes that he made um, that's published in, the, there's an essay about the, the woes of the Druidine and Unfinished Tales, suggests, not strongly, but he definitely brings up that, that maybe there's kinship between the woes and the orcs back in history, and that the two groups viewed each other as renegades, is how he says that. Um, so he, he was thinking like, maybe they came from wherever they came from, I don't know. And that raises a really uh, a problematic concern, actually, that resonates pretty strongly with the way Native Americans are treated, which is there's a note in that essay that the um, uh, the Eldar admitted them to the ranks of the Atani, right? So they, they're granted sort of human status based on their hatred of the orcs and their fighting them. But also, we've just suggested that possibly they're related to one another. And that um, that sort of being granted human status by virtue of the fact that you are prepared to fight on our behalf against the people who you might actually be related to was very much how different, uh, especially in New England, when uh, the, the French and the English were fighting one another, very much about how different tribes were granted like people status or not it was like, well, you've allied with us against your cousins over there who also happen to be fighting with the French. So we like you now. And you mm -hmm. get to be people and you can live in our city. Now, if we don't need you anymore because the fighting is done, we're going to scoot you off that land because we really, really like to grow things there. Um, but yeah, he, he definitely struggled with that, that like having put them there. Okay, well, now what are they? Where'd they come from? Who are they? Maybe they share kinship with orcs. And that's problematic uh, in a way. And, you know, there was never a solid resolution for that. That's, you know, contradictory mm -hmm. notes published in the history of Middle Earth. And there was never a, Yes, they woke up with men wherever the men awoke, or no, they came from somewhere else. He never really bought it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a question here from Joe Hoffman, um, and he's asking about a particular resource. He says, did you see the essay, Tolkien in Pawnee Land, where a member of the Skiddy Pawnee identifies some of his tribe's traditions in The Lord of the Rings? Um, I did. I actually, at the... Um... <laughs> <laughs> um, I did, and what was interesting about that was the the, the traditions. So the traditions that he's finding, um, particularly, uh, is, are, are focused a lot on things that happened in Silmarillion. Um, there's there's uh, Ungoliant, um, and I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna be vague on the details because I did read it, but it was a year ago now. Um, it, it was focused on taking um, traditions from the, the, there was a book, uh, History of the Skiddy Pawnee, that was in the library at one of the schools that he went to. Um, but it was, it was, it focused more on, on things that had been taken out and sort of used as inspiration for the Silmarillion specifically. And the thing is that he never did effectively work the woes back into the Silmarillion stuff very effectively. So I did read it and it was fascinating. And uh and I think I do mention that that you know he pulls from from 
is he had sort of a lifelong fascination that he said with with the Red Indian. He brought it up in on fairy stories. Um, he there, there's a there's a reference in one of the published versions of On Fairy Stories about his marked up copy of the Yellow Fairy book. Mm-hmm. It actually has a note. There's a couple of stories that are, you know, Andrew Lang just says from the Red Indian, which is not very helpful or descriptive. But but there's a note, you know, there's a couple notes Tolkien wrote on them. Like he definitely had a fascination with Indian culture or Native American culture in general, and he pulled a lot of things, or potentially did. Like Roger Echo Hawk, who wrote the Tolkien Pontyland is is hesitant to 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 uh strongly assert that he that he was inspired by these things he's he strongly suggests it but never makes really like a solid definitive statement um so i did read that it was a fascinating book but it focused less on things that appeared in lord of the rings more on things that work into the summer okay thank you so keeping with all of this um here with this creation of this particular people that Tolkien himself then had to desperately try to retcon uh, and didn't quite manage it. Um, but there you have them and they they have a function in the narrative, um, whatever else you say about them. So having these people right there in that moment, how does that help to contribute to that sense of depth of narrative that Tolkien is creating. I mean, as we know, those of us who study Tolkien know how it's, you know, to, to start quoting Shrek, it's like an onion. Um, <laughs> it's got many layers. I'm not going to attempt the Shrek voice because no. Um, but you've got I this. I won't either. <laughs> you've got this richness, this depth in the narrative. How does this, I mean, the Woeses barely appear. They're almost a blink and you miss them. In fact, they're so blinking you miss them that Jackson did completely. Um, so why, you know, what do they contribute to that richness of narrative? Um, now, to, to be fair to uh, Peter Jackson, he had a lot to work through. So I don't yeah. think he, uh, I don't think he blinked and missed them. I'm sure he looked at them and thought, no, we're not going to put that in there. Um, Time is nothing else. But, there's there are already uh there's already a lot of movie um you know they one of the i think one of the things that really helps build the depth that people uh love so much about um lord of the rings is is you know the the glimpses of of historical things that are now you know that that the the landscape is sort of littered with things that are old and and partially explained and whatever and and their their association i think particularly with dunharrow is part of it like we have this this ancient hold with these statues that rohan has moved into and it doesn't know who built it i don't know it came from somewhere but we're using it and then you see when they finally meet the woes as mary in particular, looks at Khan Barhan and immediately says, "Well, that's clearly the inspiration for those statues that we saw over there." And it it takes this whole, you know, it it it, it attaches them or it it identifies them with this ancient history, ancient enough that Rohan doesn't even know where it came from. Like there's, you know, they, they've clearly lived there for 
thousands of years, but it takes a second for you to put together what's like, oh, you know, that's, I'm not explaining this very well. Um, it's okay. But that's, you know, that's, it, they're, they're ancient. They're, you know, they're, and they're associated with this, this, I don't know, I'm floundering. All right. That's, that's, I had a good answer for this one. And, uh, yeah, it's a, I mean, the very, <laughs> the very fact that they are so clearly an ancient people speaks to the depth of history that we have in this world. Because we already have the Rohirrim, who seem to speak back to the Anglo-Saxon uh, tradition, for example. But the Woses go back way further than that, um, much, much longer before that. Uh, and when you have those as well as, I mean, we already know the elves are ancient, we know this, but then suddenly you have this human race um, that are um, so ancient, they're almost forgotten even by the Rohirrim. Well, and they, they have apparently maintained, to some degree at least, a very consistent oral culture over those years. You know, we never see them write. There's no, there's no writing uh, at Dunharrow. Um, they don't seem to have any sort of particular material culture aside from the arrows that we hear that they use. Um, but they remember the arrival of the Numenorians and the roads that they built that are now completely forgotten. Like they've, they've maintained a, a continuity of culture through invasions by Numenor, incursions by Gondor, by Rohan, by, you know, through being hunted by the Rohirrim apparently for some reason. And, uh, and it's something that actually I, I, it, it's a, a place where Tolkien has sort of happened upon or, or has intentionally put in one of things that actually resonates fairly strongly with actual Native American cultures, which is that continuity of culture. Um, mm -hmm. that, that there's a book I read that's um, uh, by Daniel Heath Justice, which is why indigenous literatures matter. And that's one of the things he brings up, like that, that culture, that continuity, that is how the people remain the people, right? Is, is telling those stories and maintaining them and it's, you know, it's one reason why, you know, in America and Canada with, with uh, you know, residential schools and stuff, you, people try to clamp down on that and, and knock that culture out because now they, you know, we can, it's much easier to control them if we can crush that culture, right? Mm -hmm. The Wozens have maintained that. And they have, you know, they've, they've offered it in the service of uh, defeating Sauron, despite the mm -hmm. fact that they're offering it to people with who they do not apparently have a very friendly relationship but yeah that's mm. you know it's not just that they're old it's that they're old and part of a long chain of culture okay so uh, moving slightly on having completed this body of work that you've now done um most of the students that i supervise um they get to this point and they're like, but there were so many other things I wanted to say <laughs> and I couldn't because of the word limit and all that kind of thing. So were there some things that you would have liked to have either put in or kept in, but couldn't, um, that you would really like to have had something to say on in your thesis? Well, there, there was one avenue I really tried to pursue that, that I think if I spoke more languages, I would have been able to pull off, um, which is which is the linguistic aspect, which, you know, is, is very, very important in Middle Earth. It's very important to Tolkien. 
and for many other cultures, he spends a lot of uh, he expends a lot of ink talking about their languages. With the Wozens, there's almost nothing. I think we get three words and one name, and we're only told what one of those words actually means. You know, the uh, Han Buri Han. He glosses that. That is Han Son of Han. So we got one. Buri means son of. They call the orcs Gorgun. Mm-hmm. But we don't actually know what that means. That's just their word for them. Now, that sounds a bit like it might have been inspired by Gorgon, Greek word, which sort of generally means monster. So, I, uh, you know, and then we get uh, Druh becomes their name for themselves. And he doesn't do that until much later. That's, that's mm-hmm. you know, years later when he's writing the essay that's published in Unfinished Tales. And that's a I love when Tolkien does this. I had another paper about it a couple of years back where he takes a word, like I need this to mean something, but it already means something in a different language. Mm-hmm. So he just changes it. But then there's sort of a ripple effect where it's like, okay, I changed it here, which means that the etymology of this that I use, well, that's wrong now. So, you know, Druidon, Drew meant wood and Adon meant man. It meant woodmen. They were, they lived in the woods, they were woodmen. So he had to take Drew and say, well, no, that's, well, that's from their name for themselves which is Drew. Okay, but now Druidon Forest means something else and Drew Wave ER, which is, you know, there was sort of a ripple effect out there. But we get nothing with words. I really would love to figure out if he had any particular, you know, if, if, there's, if there's some way to bring the, the few words we get together and say, okay, well, he was working with, with Greek because Gorgon, or maybe it's, it's Russian because Druj and Drug are similar. I don't know, but I, I tried, and if I spoke more languages, maybe I would have had the moment where I'm like, ah, it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's probably still something to be done there, but there's not a whole lot to work with. Um, and that's that's really the one that, that sticks with me. I wish there was a way to, to dig more into the language. It's so important to every other culture, and he just didn't didn't do much with it. I was, I'm, I'm always sort of hoping in, you know, like the nature of Middle Earth or maybe, you know, some new issue of Parma that comes out, there's going to be like, ah, we found more words. And then, then mm-hmm. we'll, it will, you know, sort of unlock that word horde. We can do something with it, but it hasn't happened yet. Great. So aside from that, um, given that you've now completed this thesis, if you were going to carry on working in this area, aside from the language, is there any other place in which you could expand on the knowledge you've already put into the thesis? Um, it would, there's, so one of the things that, uh, that Amy Sturgis, who's I think here, uh, my second reader, mm-hmm. suggested, yes, yeah. which was you, you really should engage more with actual uh, Native American voices, with scholars who, you know, are on the other side of, of this stereotype that I'm dealing with. Like I'm, I'm clearly on one side, they're on the other side of that. And and I did read some and I did, like I said, I found that there's, you know, sort of he happened upon a very uh, a very interesting thing, which is that continuity of culture. But I really feel like it could definitely be expanded by looking at more, um, by, by bringing in more actual Native American voices and looking at, you know, sort of how, how that, that stereotype is was constructed you know from from the other side of it and sort of there's there are some you know there's sources from the 17th and 18th centuries 
from the Native American side, they exist. They're a little harder to come by because they were not published in great numbers in Europe because no one's really interested in them. Um, so I, I would like to explore that more and, and look at sort of how that is, you know, how it's understood by the people whose ancestors were actually the source for the stereotype and who now are still living with the, you know, the, the outcomes of, of sort of being grouped like this and being represented like this and having it used as an excuse to put you on reservations, to put you in schools and stuff like that. Like, you know, Tolkien was sort of looking at, okay, let's put a, a human face behind this thing. Those human faces still exist and they're still here. There's plenty of them around and I did uh, engage a little bit, but I really think there's more that could be done there. But it, it opens mm -hmm. up new avenues. That's a whole other, the whole other 40 pages worth of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> there is a limit to how much one can do and what so yes that is true uh, i mean um obviously one day if you wanted to uh, create a publishable paper out of it then perhaps to gain the balance uh in that publishable paper you could engage with it then um but yes you know if one day you decided to expand i think that would be a really important area to to create that balance of argument in the thesis but you're right it happens with everybody who does their master's thesis like i want to do all the things but i've all only got things. yes i've only got 10 to fifteen thousand words in which to do all the things and it's and just, it's yeah that's the slippery slope to a doctoral dissertation right as we have discussed yes it is indeed <laughs> <laughs> like you know what i could do is i could do another one Not well yes yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, if you if you want two master's degrees, I'm not going to tell you no. That's for sure. Uh, oh, and Amy Sturgis. My wife, my wife says, has been very. My wife has. Oh, sorry. I say my wife oh. has been very patient through this whole process. Um, but I'm not going to embark on anything else like this right now because uh, that's not going to go well. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, um, I know all about the spouse being very, very patient while you work through a whole load of stuff. <laughs> I, I yeah. completely understand. Uh, Amy does say uh, hello and thanks for the shout out. It's lovely to have Amy Sturgis here with us. And Amy, of course, was uh, Jean's second reader for the thesis. I'm very grateful to her for the input uh, into your thesis. Um, OK. Uh, and uh, Amy says, congratulations to you. Um, Richard has a question, says, did you just liken Native American reservations to how the Woses were granted the land they were already on? Yeah, that, so the, you know, in, in at the end of Return of the King in recognition for their, their help, right? Aragorn, as he's, taking his entourage back through the wood, makes an announcement to the listening ears in the woods, you know, I, I give them this land to, you know, let no man trespass on it uh, without their permission, which is interesting because, you know, it, it's already theirs. They've been there since before Gondor showed up, before, you know, Numenor arrived. They presumably had even more land because Dunharrow was theirs, but now it's in Rohan. So it's it's an interesting it's, it's something that I discuss in the paper, which is, is, is Aragorn giving it to them because it's a part of Gondor, or is he recognizing their existing sovereignty? And it's, it's hard to tell. I, I think there's a degree to which he's recognizing the existing sovereignty. There's an initial version of that passage where he actually speaks to 
Khan Bar Khan and some of his his uh, his headmen face to face, and they literally they bow and they put their foreheads on his feet, and it's much more paternalistic for Aragorn, where he's really the king who's you know, and he softened that and changed it to no no he just announces it to them in the woods. They roll their drums, which is a very ambiguous response. Which is is that thank you? Is that yeah we know. It could be taken in a number of different ways. So, but it's you know that that sort of granting back to people the land that they've already been on for a very long time is something that happened a lot in uh, in North America and in American Canada, and you know sometimes you would say, well, they you you had this much land, we're going to give you this part in the middle of it because we don't actually want that. But later uh, governors or later presidents or later monarchs. Like, well, now we actually do kind of want that land. So now we're going to scooch. So you have to wonder, you know, is a future king of Gondor going to decide that actually they'd really like that forest to, you know, have a city at the base of the island Beacon or something. And now we're going to scooch you off. That. It's it, it, it resonates very strongly with that sort of where it's like, we're going to recognize your ownership of this land that you've actually been on since before we got here. You know, and you, you, you hope that Aragorn is simply recognizing the existing sovereignty. It's not really easy to say or easy to to to, to determine. Um, and yeah, you don't really know what's going to happen in the fourth inch. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, just to kind of nod back to what Amy Sturgis said just now. She said congratulations, and and I'd like to echo that. Congratulations on completing this piece of work. Um, it's a long process, it's a tough process, and it's a challenging process as well. Um, and uh, it's, this is a question that I usually ask my students when they get to this point, which is, what advice would you give other master's degree students who haven't quite got as far as the, uh, the thesis stage? Um, what advice would you give them um, to help to prepare them for the process that you've just come through? Well, I think everyone is, is still required to take the research methods class, right? Uh, no, 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 no. Are we not no, we're doing yeah. a new thing. There will be a new type of class that will help to do that. But so the research methods, methods class has, uh, has gone by the by for now. No, well, never mind about that then. Um, I, I think the the two things that really helped me um, that, that I had to sort of that I hadn't been doing with the earlier papers I'd written is, is one of them was simply keeping my research organized in a way that was easy to actually look through it. Now I used um, I used an app called Scrivener, um, which I know is is designed for general you know writing, whether it's papers or novels or whatever you want to do. Um, but it, it made it really easy to 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 keep everything as a nice sidebar where I got all my sections and I had an outline, and uh, and each section was its own document. So I, I wasn't looking at a 40 page document the whole time, which is very difficult for me to deal with, like the so many blank pages, you know. Um, but but keeping it all really organized made it very easy for me to to go back and forth between different things when I was trying to reference stuff, which is really helpful. Earlier papers was all sort of a collection of Google documents or whatever, and it just it was I would get lost and I wasn't sure what I was looking for. Um, but the other thing is that uh, uh, editing is easier than writing. 
you know, it's it's much easier to fix something you've already written than it is to sort of look at the blank page and put the words down. So I, my first draft was very short and very rough. And I thought it doesn't, it doesn't matter what this draft looks like. Nobody's going to see it because I'm going to fix it. Just do something. Um, and, and having done something, it was much easier to go back and say, okay, now let's look at this paragraph. Let's make it into something better. So, so that's, that's the real thing. Editing's easier than writing. So don't try to make it perfect on that first draft. Just put something on the paper and then go back and fix it. And if in fixing it, you decide you have to throw out that whole thing. Well, that's what happens sometimes. You know, there were, there were paragraphs that just disappeared because I'm like, that's actually not useful. No, I have to agree with you with that last point because there's, there's something kind of terrifying about the tyranny of the blank page. Um, yeah. It feels so much better if you've got stuff written, even if that stuff isn't exactly as you want it. And you're absolutely right. Reaching for perfection on your first draft is just far too much pressure. Just get your ideas down uh, and fix them later. Completely yeah. agree with that. Like, like even if by the end it's not even complete sentences anymore and it's just this point, that point, that point, that's enough, that's something, mm. and then you can fix it. Absolutely, yes. I mean, just throwing down a bunch of bullet points is good because you can always come back and expand the bullet points. That is absolutely correct. Yeah, okay. I, I realized halfway through my 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 Signum journey uh, just exactly how effective outlining really is, and I yes. wish I had done that more often when I was an undergrad. I didn't see the value in it yet, but now I do. Outlining is a great idea. Yes, if you can build the scaffold, you can put the building around it. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Professor Swank says, "Bravo, Gene." Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and, and Sparrow says, thank you, Eugene, as well. Um, and thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for dragging me along thank on your signal journey. Well, well, thank you for coming with me. Um. It was great fun for me. And uh, it was wonderful to see um, those first, oh my goodness, bullet points actually be crafted into a completed thesis. That was a, a pleasure and a privilege. So thank you very much thank for allowing me to work much. with Eugene. It's been great. Uh, it was my pleasure. Um, thank you. I, I I would not, I think, have actually managed to successfully make it through this whole thing without, you know, you and Sparrow and Chris and just everybody. So many people at Signum that are all very, you know, everyone is so um it was very, very supportive and enthusiastic in this community. And it it, it really is uh very, very helpful. It makes the whole thing sort of much more it's it's not just a uh, uh, you know it's stressful sometimes it's it's there's a lot of learning it's whatever but it's also very it's very pleasant and and not pleasant is the word but it's very you know it, it feels like a community everyone is very we all want to see each other succeed nice. we all want to see each other succeed I think that's the perfect moment to end because that is absolutely true we all want to see each other succeed and succeed <laughs> Wonderful. So, party congratulations. I'm sure there's applause oh, going on throughout the audience. Uh, Amy saying yes, indeed. Uh, and yeah, I'm delighted for you. So, thank you very much to everybody who has joined us today for Jean's Thesis Theatre. I'm really grateful that you came along. Thank you to those people who've asked questions and engaged with it. Thank you also to those who just 
um, were here and have listened um, and enjoyed along with the rest of us. Uh, and that's it. So thank you again. And uh, we'll hope to see you another time for another Thesis Theatre. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody.